Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for Wednesday, October the 6th, 2021. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I wish, wish everyone out there a very happy Noodle Day. Um, we hope that you have uh, found some fine selection of Italian or Asian or some other kind of noodle to enjoy your lunch with us here at the Rundown as we bring you the news of the week. And boy, it's been kind of exciting since the last time we met. Um, joining me today are my partners in crime, my favorite friends, uh, Zach. What have you been up to since the last time we met? You know, last night I had some penne, so I was just getting nice and prepared for for the wonderful starchy day that is today. Awesome. That's good to hear. Steven, how about you? Well, I have to say it's also National Transfer Money to Your Daughter Day. That's not something I just made up. That's something Zach just told me. And um, I actually just transferred some money to my daughter so that she can get herself some beautiful tonkatsu ramen at a restaurant near her school. So um, honestly, um, amazing. If you guys haven't had tonkatsu ramen. Oh. And now that Steven has made me deliriously hungry, it's time to talk about the news because we've had a few stories that have cropped up, some things we've covered on the rundown before, but some things that are brand new to us. And I'm gonna kick it off because, well, I, I couldn't help but not talk about this because we all know that The Last Jedi is probably the most divisive movie in the Star Wars franchise. Yeah, JWCC. There's no vowels in there. Um, no news from Oracle if they're considering any kind of additional legal action or if they have decided to come back more powerful than we could possibly imagine after being struck down like this. Steven, you and I have been following this for way longer than we should have. Um, can we finally put an end to this Jedi saga? Please, can we? Um, yeah. Oh, my God. I am so sick of this story. Everyone's sick of this story. Let's put an end to it. Let's decide there is no more, uh, no more Jedi. Um, the Sith took over. We're done. Uh, no more Jedi. Um, yeah. Okay. Great. 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 No more. Uh, no more appeals. Uh, no more messing around with it. The next procurement is already open, and Oracle's losing that one too. Uh, oh, sorry. Spoilers. And um, and and they'll sue, I guess, or something. Uh, in so, other news, the Forbes 400 list just came out, and Larry Ellison is number seven on the list. He added forty-five billion dollars to his fortune through the pandemic, and is uh, now at one hundred and seventeen point three billion dollars. Uh, it also notes that uh, Larry is now officially a resident of Hawaii, and so, he scored the lowest possible score on the Forbes philanthropy list. 
Um, Steven, just out of curiosity, now that we've pretty much gotten Oracle out of the way, and this is down to Amazon and Microsoft for this contract, would it be appropriate to say that only two there are? <laughs> Couldn't resist. Okay, uh, moving on. Um, let's talk about something else. Um, while you were, were, was anybody having any is issues with websites recently? Um, I, I, my mom said she was having some problems. No, uh, it's possible that your misfortune was caused by a problem with a certificate. Uh, a number of websites that rely on the Let's Encrypt service for TLS certificates started appearing offline for users. By the way, full disclosure, we use Let's Encrypt uh, for our websites. Uh, uh, Let's Encrypt had warned consumers that their old root certificate would expire on September 30th without an update to the chain of trust. There would be outages uh, because of the expiration of the old certificate. Um, in grand internet fashion, there were several companies that didn't listen, including ones that probably should have known better, like Palo Alto Networks, Catchpoint, Shopify, and more. Uh, once the companies realized that Let's Encrypt wasn't kidding um, and all their stuff was going to fail, uh, they were able to restore services by, you know, updating the certificate. Uh, Zach, how could the internet possibly have avoided this uh, surprising catastrophe? Uh, I don't know, Stephen. Maybe they could have updated their certificates. Who would have thunk? You know, one of those uh, age-old processes you want to do every, say, two, three, four years, because inevitably they are going to expire because, like all things, there's you know, new and better and more updated versions that, uh, you know, are going to carry the load of your internet use. Uh, yeah, this this one seems like a real no brainer. I don't know what, especially some of these really big uh, companies, you know, who who made the list. If you check out the article in the show notes, you'll see quite a quite a cadre of folks that really should have just been on top of the ball. And they had warnings for weeks, months, years. I mean, there, there was another similar instance that happened last year with a different, uh, you know, a different set of certificates. And there was a whole, you know, group of companies that got got just like these folks. So why, you know, why are we not learning from history, people? And more importantly, why are we not updating our certificates? It's just a, a best practice. You just got to do this thing. So come on, folks. That's a that's a that's a that's a no, no. So I, I would just uh, like to point out, too, that a lot of systems that use Let's Encrypt actually are automated and update their certificates on their own, including our stuff. Exactly. So I just, I'm at a loss with this one. Um, you know, I just, I hope that these problems go away just like the Jedi contract. Anyways, on to another story. Uh, you may recall in a previous episode of the rundown that we mentioned that FireEye and Mandiant were splitting apart with FireEye going to a private equity firm. Last week, uh, late last week, actually, the firm Symphony Technology Group announced that some changes uh, would be made to their portfolio, with the biggest news uh, being that there was going to be a closure in the FireEye sale and that it would be merged with the assets of the McAfee Enterprise, which was acquired back in July of this year. The enterprise-focused company that comes out of this merger will have 40,000 customers and almost $2 billion uh, U.S. in revenue. No word yet on what they're going to call this new organization, but Tom, what do you make of this? I think it's funny that the uh, McAfee Enterprise Asset Acquisition, which is a mouthful, was completed in July. The FireEye sale from FireEye Mandiant uh, happened and closed last week, and boy, within like 
hours, we got immediate notification that they're merging these two assets, which honestly makes a whole lot of sense. Um, going back to what we had before in the story, if you remember, uh, you probably have heard the name FireEye or possibly Mandiant uh, in relation to that whole thing that happened with SolarWinds late last year, because Mandiant was the part of the organization that did the forensic analysis and all the investigation. FireEye was the products division that kind of sold the things to stop that kind of stuff from happening. And they decided that maybe it was better to build a slightly larger wall between those two organizations to kind of keep it from looking like they were double dipping. So FireEye went one way and Mandiant went the other. And FireEye got picked up by everyone's favorite, um, well, I don't think it'd be fair to call them vulture capital, but that's how it feels sometimes. Um, but it looks like the, what the plan originally was is that they wanted to create this super organization to kind of unify a whole bunch of cybersecurity assets. And considering the same thing happened to Symantec just a few months ago, that's not unsurprising. So you've got the assets for McAfee Enterprise, which quite honestly were probably really good assets. It's just unfortunate that they had that name attached to them. And you've got the assets from FireEye, which are probably just as good of those assets too. And now by merging them together into some form of Devastator, Superion, Combaticus, I don't remember, and some Autobot Transformer. Um, now we have a new organization that'll probably have a new rebranding so that we can leave all that other stuff behind and we can sell some stuff to some people. Although from the sound of things with 40,000 customers and $2 billion in revenue, they're already selling a lot of stuff. But when you look at the amount of stuff that's going on right now when it, in regards to cybersecurity and ransomware protection and all those other things, it's kind of a big deal. So I think what we're going to see is the we're moving, especially in the cybersecurity endpoint protection space, we're moving away from these, you know, massive amount of like boutique vendors that are all doing something very specific. And everybody is getting bought out by venture capital funds to be merged together. So the days of Avast, Avera, ESG, Norton, McAfee, the, you know, literal toolbox full of AV vendors, that's gone. They're all going to be owned by two companies before it's all said and done with. So good luck to the teams at FireEye and McAfee, and I hope that you guys are going to, you know, continue to form Security Voltron. All right, Stephen, I got a storage story for you because, you know, first it was website availability, then it was DNS, but now Cloudflare is looking to move into the storage market. Reports are out that the cloud giant is going to be creating a distributed object storage system that they're calling R2 which is one less than S3 and still quite possibly the coolest droid ever made. What's cooler than the name? The report that Cloudflare will not be charging for data egress. You know, as opposed to that reassuringly expensive rate that you have to pay if you're trying to ransom your data back from Amazon S3. Uh, because of their distributed global network, Cloudflare believes that they can offer this service with no additional egress fees because, well, <laughs> turns out bandwidth is a fixed cost and they already have bandwidth all over the place. No word yet on the release date from Cloudflare R2, but we've already preemptively moved Oracle down a spot on the top cloud provider list because why not? Um, Stephen, what are your thoughts about uh, Cloudflare's proposed competitor to Amazon S3? Yeah, I'm well. First thing, first things first. Uh, the the link that we're going to include in the show notes is to a wonderful, fantastic article by Ben Thompson over at Stratechery. And if you're not a reader of Stratechery or even a subscriber, you might consider it. Uh, ben is one of the smartest people in the room, and his take on this is chef's kiss. Um, so here's the thing: What is Amazon? You know, how did Amazon make their money? Well, famously, Amazon makes their money um, off of the idiom, your margin is my business opportunity. 
In other words, Amazon looks around and finds businesses that have a high margin that can be disrupted, disrupts them, charges a low margin, and then owns the market. Guess what? That's exactly what Cloudflare is doing to Amazon. So if you look at S3, now Amazon admittedly has aggressively reduced prices on everything they sell uh, preemptively and not even competitively. They just sort of do. They just sort of drop prices all the time. But, but they're still making a ton of money on ingress and egress of data, especially egress of data, and um, especially with S3. Uh, and it makes it kind of a roach motel where you know you can check in, but you can't check out. You know you can't get your data back because you have to pay so much to get it back. Um, well, guess what? That's margin. And uh, guess what Cloudflare has? So Cloudflare's, I don't know, superpower is that they've got deals with basically everybody on the internet that allow them to send data back and forth with no marginal cost. In other words, uh, that's that's kind of how Cloudflare works. You know, if they say we saved you, you know, 50 gigabytes of bandwidth this month, the reason they did that is because they basically put it on their network and sent it with a no fee structure to wherever it needed to go because, you know, Verizon or, you know, whoever the telecom is like kind of wants that data to go back and forth. Um, all that is free. All that bandwidth is free at what's well, fixed cost. In other words, uh, as, as Ben Thompson says, it's kind of like, imagine you buy like an ethernet cable between your laptop and your ethernet switch. Like you don't have to meter that. You bought the cable, the cable is yours. You can use all that bandwidth all day, every day. Um, and as long as you still got the cable and, and the switch and stuff, it's free. That's kind of how bandwidth is for Cloudflare. And that's what they're doing to Amazon. Uh, basically they're disrupting Amazon just like Amazon disrupted others. And Amazon's incredible margin on uh, egress fees are now Cloudflare's incredible opportunity on this. And I think they're going to do a good job of this. Another thing that Thompson points out is that uh, Cloudflare has done just a remarkable job of being, you know, sort of attacking around the edges, attacking from below, and um, basically being what Clayton Christensen describes in the Innovator's Dilemma as the company that comes in and outcompetes the incumbents. Um, yeah, that's what Cloudflare is doing. That's what Cloudflare has always done. This is totally compatible with their business model. Um, they recently introduced um, serverless Cloudflare workers, uh, which another is, is another great use of their infrastructure. And, and I see them doing this. In a way, it kind of looks like kind of cloud 3.0 to me. In other words, it's kind of like a next generation cloud service that is as different from AWS as AWS is from, I don't know, a virtualized VMware stack or something like that. I mean, it's really pretty cool stuff. Um, also, I got to point out that Matthew Prince, the CEO and founder of Cloudflare is number 229 on the Forbes list. So maybe he'll get, get a little higher in the future thanks to clever disruption like this. So uh, do your kids use Twitch? Uh, I know my kids do. Uh, in fact, I know a lot of friends of mine who use Twitch, a lot, a lot, a lot of people who like to watch the video game streaming and, and so on. Uh, well, Twitch TV had their entire website dumped on the internet this morning. <laughs> Oops. Uh, the website source code, uh, payout information for streamers, uh, even encrypted password files were all put into a torrent file and dumped. Anonymous sources are reporting that the leak is legitimate and includes data up to this week. In other words, uh, this just happened and it's out there and it's out there in a big way. 
Uh, the creator payout list was from 2019, though, and it lists the monthly earnings for most popular channels on the service, which included some, I don't know, fun and uh, kind of gratifying surprises. Zach, uh, should we go live on Twitch and talk about this hack? Why not? Let's do it. Uh, you know, I, I just a quick word of advice for all the you Twitch users out there, and especially you, uh, you Twitch streamers, update your passwords. Now's probably the time. Uh, just just seems like a, a good uh, thing for you to do right now, considering the gravity of what just happened. Uh, you know, reading through the uh, the article that we've got in the show notes from 9to5Mac, it, uh, it seems like for the most part, there wasn't any aggressive, uh, you know, moves made against any particular users. And, and for the most part, it seems like the uh, the hacker in question who was responsible for this action mostly just wanted to uh, kind of get at the service itself for a lot of uh, recent bot activity that's been going on that have been harassing particular streamers. So, uh, you know, this this ultimately is, is you know, kind of a scary, uh, a portent, given that they were able to get all of the information from the website. But, uh, you know, it seems like they didn't have any ultimately nefarious goals besides, uh, you know, just making it known and, and bringing it to light that they Twitch is uh, fallible. So... Uh, should we stream it? Yes, probably. Why not? Uh, we can maybe uh, get up it with the likes of Critical Role, who is making something to the tune of millions upon millions of dollars uh, per month uh, to stream Dungeons and Dragons. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure that we could we could uh, catch the hearts and minds of some of the youth and, and not youth out there who love streaming the IT news of the week. Speaking of IT news of the week, oh boy. We've got a big one to uh, dive into with a bit of a closer look today. Um, you know, did you, you know, maybe you were sitting around earlier this week and getting a whole stream of text messages from your mother or something uh, because Facebook happened to uh, just go down for a little bit. Uh, and, and you might have been hearing some, some weird questions about DMS and BGP. Well, let's uh, let's dive into those a little bit because the social media empire went offline Monday morning and stayed offline for hours. It was glorious. Anyways, reports were ranging far and wide uh, from the believable automation issues causing problems to the hilarious lack of access to the physical equipment to the downright insane theories that the company uh, just straight up took itself down due to recent bad PR. But the ultimate resolution uh, and cause are still being investigated, but the culprit appears to be a routing protocol and DNS combined. Tom, you're our resident network expert. Can you shed a little light on this for us? I've been waiting for this moment, and I was watching with bated breath on Monday as they dissected everything that was going on. Um, so, <clears throat> yes, it was the network. Yes, it was DNS, but it was also not DNS. And it gets complicated, and I'm going to try to simplify it as much as possible. So here's the first thing you need to know. Facebook is not a normal network, and I've been saying that for years. If your network looks like Facebook, you've got problems. Because they don't build on a traditional model like we think you should. They just throw stuff at the wall, and whatever sticks gets integrated into the whole process. 
and we learned that many, many years ago when we did a software-defined data center symposium. Stephen and I put it on, and we actually had a guy from Facebook who got up there, and I thought one of the most striking things that he said was, yeah, we don't trust BGP. Um, we, we integrate it into our bigger model, but we don't trust it because it's not stable enough. And for those of you who do not know, BGP, Border Gateway Protocol, is the way that systems on the internet exchange routing information. So basically, once you, your packet needs to get out of your neighborhood, it, it's probably going to have to use BGP to go somewhere. Think of it like an interstate. Well, here's the deal. Facebook has this hybrid model of doing all of their routing updates because they don't trust BGP because they think that BGP can lie to you, which it can. It's an older, darker kind of magic. But here's the deal. And this is where it gets crazy because, well, this is Facebook trying to be cleverer than they are. Their DNS servers are constantly checking to make sure that the internal network at Facebook is reachable. If it's not for some reason, DNS has the authority to yank all of the BGP routes out of the BGP table from being advertised. Basically, it's slamming the blast door shut. By all accounts, there was some kind of an error that happened internal to Facebook sometime on Monday morning. What I'm hearing is, is that there was some kind of an automated route push that either was sent that shouldn't have been or got triggered when it was kind of marked as don't do this thing. So what happened is, is all of the internal systems at Facebook went offline. Okay, normally that's not a problem. I've done that before, not on a scale of Facebook. But here's where it gets the whole cleverer than you are problem. DNS saw that everything went offline, so guess what it did? It yanked all of the BGP routes out of the global BGP table so that Facebook was not available. Except two of the DNS servers were still online. So you could go to Facebook.com, but once you got to that DNS server, it didn't have anywhere else to go. So all the traffic was getting black holed. That's why it looked like Facebook was offline. But here's where it gets even crazier. <clears throat> so all of the people inside of Facebook that knew how to fix this problem and revert the changes in routing, because there is no reload in 10 command on Facebook servers, none of them had physical access to the boxes. Because once the internal network went down, nobody could remote anywhere. How crazy was this? According to reports, years ago, someone noticed that none of the doors in Facebook's data centers had keys, key locks in them. They were all badge access. And someone said, well, what happens if the network goes down? And supposedly their tour guide went, somebody smarter than me has probably already figured that out. Narrator's voice. No, they didn't. And nobody had access to get into the cages where the physical assets were located. Because by this point, you're going to have to console into the devices in order to fix the problem. By all reports, and I can't verify this, someone had to go find a guy with an angle grinder to cut the locks off the cages to be able to get into the servers to revert the changes. So, kids, if you don't have an angle grinder in your disaster recovery toolkit, now's the time to go to Lowe's and get one. Once they got everything cut open and they were able to revert all of the changes, they started coming back online about uh, 3 o'clock Pacific time. We're never going to know exactly what happened because I promise you, unlike Cloudflare, they're never going to do one of those blame-free, we screwed up post-mortems. In fact, even the, the link we're going to have in the show notes looks an awful lot like, hey, a thing happened, and boy, didn't it get crazy for a while. Uh, and Thousand Eyes and Cloudflare have both done really great uh, post-mortems on this, at least from the outside looking in, which is DNS withdrew all of the BGP routes, which, oh God, I, I could probably write four blog posts about why that's a terrible idea. But ultimately, here's the thing. For those of you out there that are still pushing the conspiracy theory that Facebook took their entire network offline 
because of that 60 minute story that came out this past Sunday about how terrible and evil they are. Realize that Mark Zuckerberg lost billions of dollars in this outage because Facebook stock took a dive. Was $50 billion of market cap loss worth this or is it literally the world's largest comedy of errors i am willing to believe that it really is a comedy of errors knowing what i'm seeing from all of this this wasn't malicious you can't plan something this crazy and expect it to be on purpose like this just it was everything happening one after the other but i will say this and i tweeted this during the outage anybody who's laughing at this glass houses, stones, there's a proverb about this. You better go put hands on your DR plan. Don't don't know where it's at. You physically need to touch it. You need to go through it and make sure that it's updated, which you should have been doing every six months anyway. And you better have an answer for every possible corner case. What happens if we get locked out of the server room and we have to hire a cat burglar to break in through the ceiling? There better be an entry in there now because one in a million happened on Monday. Stephen, what do you have to think about this? Yeah, I have to say, um, you know, kudos to our friends over at Thousand Eyes and Cloudflare uh, who did such wonderful postmortems because, yeah, the Facebook one is just as ridiculous as you think it is. On the plus side, it's probably readable by average reporters who aren't tech reporters. On the negative side, it doesn't say anything. Um, what really happened here was absolutely 100% a technical error. But that being said, it was actually, in my opinion, an avoidable technical error, and it relied on a simple fallacy, and that is basically, don't make your automation automate itself. In other words, the problem here, it was actually, it was caused by what was actually a good idea. The good idea was, hey, we shouldn't be advertising um, web services and routes that don't exist, and so if something's down, let's take it out so that it doesn't kind of exist in the network. In other words, um, you know, imagine if all like the street signs in your town were all wired together so that if there was construction, like, like it could like dynamically reroute everybody and, and like pretend like this, this street no longer exists and everybody would just go on a different one, right? Well, that's great, except that they made the system also rely on those routes. And, 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 and so essentially the system was relying on itself and its own automation was automated into itself. And the problem is then you get this cascade problem where if the system shuts itself out of itself, then everything's dead. And that's basically what happened here. And, and everyone in IT, like Tom said, I mean, we're not, I, I, I tell you, everybody I talk to is not laughing about this. In fact, everyone I talk to is like, oh my gosh, this could totally happen to almost any system. Because the truth is a lot of things are automated now. And all those things that are automated are becoming increasingly layered. And, and, and yet there are tunnels down into the layers. And the problem is that if the automation relies on another automation, and if that automation relies on this automation, everybody who's written a shell script or a Python program or anything has experienced this problem of, oh, that relies on this, but this relies on that. And then, you know, that's what happened here. So yeah, this totally wasn't result of the 60 minutes thing. It's not a political thing. It wasn't a game. It wasn't anything. It was a moderately predictable failure of the sort of automation that happens all over the place, except Facebook just does a lot more of it than most people. I wouldn't be surprised if something in, not exactly the same, but if something very similar happened at Google 
or at Amazon or at Twitter. And that's why if you look at the responses from people, for example, like Twitter, uh, they were absolutely not gleeful over this. Um, even Signal, who obviously benefited from the loss of you know, WhatsApp and Instagram, uh, even Signal uh, said, yeah, we're getting more signups, but they weren't like, ha ha, you shouldn't use Facebook. Because I think that everybody in the tech industry realizes that this is a thing that can happen. And it's a thing that might happen again. I agree, Stephen. And I'm pleased that a lot of the, the social media teams and the, the enterprise tech teams were <laughs> smart enough to not throw a big rock that would probably have boomeranged back around and hit them in the head. All right. Um, it is the most wonderful time of the year if you're into virtualization because VMworld 2021 is happening this week, virtually, of course. And uh, there's uh, been a ton of new product announcements, but the biggest one perhaps for us as tech nerds is Project Capitola. Uh, it's a technology preview that is an implementation of software-defined memory. Now, hold on. Don't roll your eyes just yet, because what exactly does the term software-defined memory mean? Well, it turns out that VMware is looking to combine tiers of memory architecture. It's just like good old-fashioned dynamic RAM, persistent memory, NVMe, and a whole bunch of other stuff that hasn't even been invented yet. And they're going to pool it into some kind of a logical resource pool. So instead of having discrete onboard memory, NVMe storage, persistent memory, it's all just going to be memory to VMware and vSphere is going to be able to manage it and allocate it as a resource pool for whatever your application needs. Hmm, that actually kind of sounds interesting, but Project Capitola is still a technology preview, so we're going to find out a little bit more on it when it gets released. And this has kind of been the cycle that VMware has been doing for the last couple of years, where they'll put something out as a technology preview, basically think of it like a beta test, and then once it's bulletproof, they'll put it live. Now, Stephen, you are the man when it comes to memory. How does this work, and what does it mean for the software-defined future of memory in the VMworld world? Let's see if I can remember the answer to that, Tom. Uh, no. um, so, so here's the thing. Uh, things are changing in compute. Uh, a long time ago, there was this idea of non-uniform memory architecture. In other words, uh, computers for a while now have had to re realize or uh, have had to be designed, software and hardware has to be designed around the fact that uh, not all memory is exactly the same. Because it used to be pretty much memory was memory. Um, but with, especially with multiprocessing systems, uh, it, some memory is a little bit further away in uh, our computer architecture speak than others. And so they had to start realizing that there were already tiers of memory. But now, now things are just going haywire on the conventional von Neumann uh, compute architecture. Uh, we've got memory all over the place. There's a technology called CXL that you might have heard of. Uh, one of the big things that CXL is bringing us is uh, off-board memory, essentially remote memory modules that can exist in a different part of a uh, rack or data center. Um, and those are obviously going to have higher latency, uh, less bandwidth, potentially uh, different characteristics. We've also talked quite a lot about storage class memory. For example, Intel's Optane um, 3D crosspoint memory which is, uh, has, has different characteristics than conventional DRAM. As I said, we've got different types of DRAM already. And now also we've got, you know, sort of memory-like non-memory. 
so companies uh, like Samsung and um, you know Hynix and and uh, Kyosha and so on are, are talking about using Flash, uh, NAND Flash, in a memory type way. Uh, all these things point out the need that uh, something that's a, a virtualization platform like VMware needs to be able to correctly address the various types of memory that a system might be configured with and that, that a, a solution might encounter. And so I was very pleased to see at VMworld that uh, VMware announced uh, their project Capitola. Essentially, think of this as a hypervisor for memory. It allows the system to correctly categorize and address memory that is very, very different, whether it is you know, conventional DRAM in the server or whether it's something more exotic like Optane or CXL that's even outside the server. All that stuff can, can work and can be provisioned correctly to virtual machines and virtual machines can just use it. This is VMware doing what VMware does best, which is abstracting and aggregating various hardware resources and making them easy to use for applications. So kudos to VMware. That being said, a lot of people are calling this, as we said, software-defined memory. A lot of people, I think, are jumping to conclusions about what this means. One of the more exciting companies that we've talked to recently with Tech Field Day is a company called Memverge. And Memverge also has done something similar to this in terms of integrating uh, storage class memory with main system memory. And they've created basically a memory hypervisor and software-defined memory already. Then we also have uh, solutions like Liquid that are doing um, you know, composable infrastructure. Uh, we've talked a lot about CXL with companies like Micron uh, and Marvell and Intel and NVIDIA. Um, all of these technologies kind of come together in different ways. And this isn't a, a replacement for any of them. So I'm no less excited about Memverge's solution than I was last week. I'm no less excited about Liquid's solution even though it relies on other technologies. All of these are basically building additional layers on this cake. And I, and I think Memverge is gonna to continue to build additional layers on this cake. I think Liquid is gonna have a good future, even though VMware is obviously adding technologies and capabilities that somewhat overlap on what Liquid was trying to do. This is good news for Liquid. This is good news for Memverge because now, instead of monitoring and managing some of the low-level stuff, they can kind of move up the stack and be the arbiter of dynamic compute infrastructure in the future, whether that's CXL or you know SRIOV, PCIe cards. Yes, that actually did make sense to if you know this thing, um, or Optane memory or whatever it is. All of these things have cool features that you can leverage in software. So think about it that way. Essentially, Capitola is providing a, a playing field, an abstraction layer that lets partner companies, and, and we've heard that uh, Cisco, Dell, HPE, Lenovo are working with VMware on this, that lets their hardware solutions work with some of the cool memory technology from VMware partners like Samsung, Micron, and Intel, but not eliminating 
the usefulness of things like liquid and membridge and the excitement that comes from imagining where this technology goes next and what other exciting and interesting solutions can come down the pike. All right. Well, you know, it's important to have a good memory about a lot of things that have been going on. But if your memory isn't as good as ours, that means you totally should be checking out the rundown every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Standard Time for all of the news of the week. Uh, you know, whether it's a security breach or an outage or some good old fashioned products that we can talk about. Um, we will be here, like I said, every Wednesday, both on our uh YouTube channel at youtube.com slash video. We also post the video to Facebook when they're up. And uh, we have a podcast if you want to subscribe to it, if you'd prefer to get your news, uh, maybe when you're on a run or in the car or waiting in the doctor's office or something like that. Um, but that's not all that we do. The rundown is just a part of all of the things that we do here at Gestalt IT. Stephen, what are some of the things that you're working on that people are going to want to check out? Well, you know, one thing I'm going to call attention to, in addition, obviously, to the Utilizing AI podcast and the on-premise roundtable, uh, we're doing something kind of fun and interesting, which is a uh, on-demand Tech Field Day offering called the uh, Tech Field Day Showcase. This is something new. Uh, we published a showcase last week. We're publishing another one actually today uh, with a partner. And so I encourage you all to, uh, you know, go to gestaltit or techfieldday.com. Um, look up some of these Tech Field Day Showcase. Uh, it's, it's more of a bite-sized Tech Field Day. Uh, so you get a couple of short presentations, you get some coverage uh, from the delegates, and it's a great way to learn about uh, things like, uh, you know, we did Pluribus Networks uh, and we just did Bamboo Systems. So some of these kind of cool technologies that uh, you might not have seen at a full-on Tech Field Day event recently. So I'm pretty excited about that. That sounds great. Definitely gonna wanna check that out. And Zach, what about you? Yeah, I uh, was a part of those showcases as well, and definitely check them out. They are uh, very cool. It's a fun format, and it's a very interesting and digestible way to learn something about a company that you might not have known about. Um, also, you might remember from last uh, week's rundown, Pure Storage had a big, uh, big launch, and I just recently uh, released a blog featuring uh, yours truly, Stephen Foskett, as well as uh, members from the Pure team talking about uh, the integration with Portworks and, and kind of celebrating their one year anniversary there. So definitely check that out. It's a, it's a fun one. And uh, just to echo Stephen and Zach, I was actually uh, one of the panelists for the Gestalt IT showcase that we recorded on uh, Pluribus Networks. And so I have a great post out on gestaltit.com talking about some of the cool things that I saw. It felt great to get back into the delegate chair for a little while at least. And, you know, it, about an hour was exactly the perfect amount of time to see the solution and kind of see it demoed. So if you want to check out the videos, uh, check out my thoughts on there. Um, you totally can at gestaltit.com. You can also check out the next exciting event that I have coming up at Tech Field Day because, you know, we love to cover security storage here on the rundown. Well, in two weeks, we have Security Field Day coming up at techfieldday.com. Check out the links, check out the schedule, check out the folks who are going to be there. I'm not going to be one of them, but trust me, the people who are going to be in the room are going to be way better at security than I am. So we want to thank you very much for tuning in for this episode of The Rundown. If you haven't gotten yourself to some Tonkatsu ramen, make sure you head over and check out where the nearest available place is to, to get some. And we will be back next week with another great roundup of stories. If you have any stories that you'd like to see us cover here on The Rundown, please make sure that you 
send them our way. You can tweet at Gestalt IT and use the hashtag rundown and we will check those out and uh, we will give you credit if we see, if we use that story in the rundown. Um, we have a great community of folks out there that are on Twitter that leave comments on our videos and uh, we love to hear what you have to say. But until next week, thank you very much for tuning in and for all of us here at Gestalt IT, we hope you have an amazing day and stay off of Facebook. <laughs>